Last year we had 600 people in neighborhood groups across our city. And I just want to share a little bit of, uh, of, of math with you over the last couple of years. So before the pandemic, uh, on a Sunday, we were somewhere around 1,200 people coming through the doors of our church, maybe a little more than that. And before the pandemic, we had, Brad, help me, 300-ish in neighborhood groups in the ballpark. And now, today, uh, we're closer to 1,000 people coming through the doors of our church with 400 people on teams and 600 people in neighborhood groups. And so on one level, we see the kind of reality of what's happened post-COVID, which is that uh, there are a few of us in, in this room, and that's true just across the board in so many churches. And yet, the core of our church, the places where we belong, is, is remarkably higher than it was before. And that's, that actually is good math. Uh, there's grief over, over the other kind, where we're a smaller congregation than we were, and yet the reality is there's an opportunity to move towards setting the table, as Addie said. And so I just want to say to you, if you are a part of that, we, we literally do this together, and, and we, this place belongs to all of us. If you're looking for a way to connect, uh, just to be crystal clear, I think that teams and groups, that's how it's going to happen for you. Uh, and so we're going to be calling you to that. So for instance, if, if you currently volunteer in our kids and, and youth spaces, would you raise your hand? There are about, yes. Um, in this church of, of roughly a thousand people, including our kids, uh, 120 of you volunteer regularly with kids, kids. We need 60 more in order to make it fully, beautifully sustainable. And so I want to invite you to consider whether or not this is an opportunity for you to serve. The reality is if we all serve, if we all join a team in one way or another, then it's like the truth of the adage of many hands make light work. Nobody burns out. Nobody wears out. And so we want to call you in this month as we're moving toward the 20th where I will be wearing a UGA football jersey because it will be team day <laughs> to join a team. Oh, you can wear all the gator stuff you want up there. You know what I mean, Brooke? We, we, we know all about the game. When was the last time Florida beat Georgia in football? I, I'm struggling to remember. I'm struggling to remember. I will tell you this. No, I won't tell you because I'm not going to go down that road. That's, I'm not going to be baited into sin when it comes to football. Not yet, anyway. Give it a few weeks. Uh, I've received letters uh, in the past about how I talk about sports, and so I'm really trying to moderate myself, but I do get very excited about these things, and I have two kids at UGA, so let's go, dogs, and join a team in the church, for sure. Um, next, Friday, September 9th, we're going to be having a big party here at Trinity. There's going to be food. We're going to have bluegrass. Our bishop is in town. You're going to get to hear from a really smart and awesome guy. We want you and your families to sign up to come. Uh, we won't know how much food to order unless you sign up. On our events page, you'll be able to find a way to jump in. On that Friday night, we're going to have a party, uh, like I said, with music, with talking, with bluegrass. And then on Saturday morning, there will be a consecration of a bishop in this sanctuary. So if you want to come to something super fancy Anglican, if you've waited your whole life to see Brad Malden in um, Anglican vestments, this is an opportunity for you to do that. Um, but we would love for you to come and sign up so we know how much, uh, how much food to make. Today's Transfiguration Sunday. 
And this is the Sunday where the church around the world celebrates the fact that Jesus took a couple of his friends up on a mountain and showed them who, who he really is. Over the next couple of months, actually up until Advent, we are going to be in the Gospels. We've been in the book of Romans for the last couple of months. We're going to be in the Gospels uh, for the remainder of the liturgical year, and we're going to be looking at who Jesus is. Um, while we're not going to read today the Transfiguration text, we're going to read a really, really important one in the life of Jesus that tells us something about who he is. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 14. We're going to read a very famous passage, one that you have undoubtedly heard before, but I pray that you would give this a fresh hearing today. So one of the, the opportunities that we all have as Christians when we're reading our Bibles is to read the Bible on a number of levels. So on one level, we are going to look at a miracle that actually happened in space and time. Jesus fed a multitude of people. And we're going to honor that moment for what it is. This is not just metaphor. Jesus actually did what we're going to read today. And at the same time, we're going to allow the truth of that one-time, non-repeatable event to tell us things about what Jesus wants to do in your life right now. So grown-up Christians can read and honor a non-repeatable event in Jesus's history and then say, how is this meant to be true on Tuesday afternoon? Because in my view, I have lived over the last three years in such a way that I feel the truth of this story as much as I do any story in the Bible. And so on that sense, I affirm its truth over and over and over again. I actually believe that the events of Jesus's life and the stories in our Bible are so fundamentally true because they orient us. They happened and they orient us in an imagination of what it looks like to be people of faith in the 21st century. So let's look back and let's look now. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you, Jesus, for this miracle. Thank you that you were working with your friends, the disciples, in a way that you, um, that should remind us and speak to us of how you want to work with us right now. Lord, we pray today that we would see you and that we would see how we show up in certain situations, Lord, and we would believe you, Jesus, for provision today. And that we would step out even when we struggle to believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. So context is very important in the Bible. And the first words in our passage, uh, verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew. 
And so if you don't think about what he heard, we won't know why he withdrew. And uh, here's what he heard. He heard that his cousin, uh, John the Baptizer, had been beheaded. And if you're familiar with that story, it's a really tragic story. It's a terrible story. Uh, John the Baptizer was um, truly the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was more like Jeremiah and Isaiah than like Matthew and Peter. Uh, he was a, he was a different guy. He was he was a forerunner of Jesus. He was also Jesus's first cousin, and uh, they spent time together. Undoubtedly, their their moms knew one another, were family, and he heard that John had spoken truth to uh, Roman power, and um, terrible things happened. Um, John is murdered, his head is severed and put on a platter and paraded around at a party over truly like gross sexual uh, desire. It's, it's a really tragically sad story. And we're told that Jesus is informed that his cousin, that the forerunner, that the one who prepared the way for him is, is gone and gone in the worst possible way. And so the first thing we see here is that Jesus makes space for grief and reflection. Before he feeds the 5,000, before he has compassion on the crowds, he withdraws. And we talk a lot in in church about being like Jesus. We we talk about following his example of listening to Jesus and patterning our life after Jesus. And um, I just want to say that that applies to this. Like if we want to be like Jesus, when we hear things that are hard and discouraging and disorienting or even devastating... Um, we, we have an, a choice about whether we'll just plow through. I mean, Jesus could have just said, no, I've got a job to do. Like, I can't be, I can't be sad about that. I've got a job to do. But that's not what he does. He, he retreats from his friends and, and his responsibilities in order to be alone with the Father and process through pain in his life unprocessed pain and grief will leak out in a million ways. I, I, I believe me, I can, I can attest to this. Ignoring painful things doesn't make them go away. We actually leak that pain in ways that hurt the people sitting next to us in church, that hurt people we care about, that cause a lot of accumulated stuff. You know, the thing is oftentimes not the thing. Like there's usually stuff under the conflicts we experience or the reactivity of our life. And Jesus in this moment is teaching you how to be a human. He takes space for himself before he rushes into places where he's swamped and surrounded by need. We're told in the text that when he comes back, he's filled with compassion. An indicator to me that I'm not processing the stimulus of life is when my compassion starts to leak and cynicism and reactivity emerge where I begin to become kind of hostile to the needs around me. Jesus, we're told, comes from a place of being alone. And all the great spiritual writers say this. Um, Willard and Foster and now and then Merton, they say that silence and solitude are core and foundational to the spiritual life. And I think what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is actually doing what he wants you to do. Um, I have learned how to be sad in the last three years. 
And I grew up in a house where there was probably, I mean, my parents are listening to this, mom, dad, I love you. Um, there, we have cameras on the columns and people watch us from TV. Uh, so that's what I was doing just there. Most of you have been in the sanctuary for years. You didn't know, like there they are right there. Um, and you know, my parents loved Jesus and served Jesus. There was a time in my childhood where it was pretty chaotic. And I learned very early on before my parents came to know the Lord that like, you just really make the best about things. I, so therefore I wasn't good at being sad. Like I was good at making, moving forward. And I've learned in the last few years to be sad, sad about things I've done that have made life hard and painful. Sad about things that people have done to me. Sad about things happening in the world that none of us have any power over. And I will tell you that Jesus wants you to know what's going on in your life because the stuff that's going on in your life does come out. If you're not sure about that, ask the person that you spend the most time with whether your stuff comes out. Jesus went to be with God. And I just want to say solitude doesn't come easy. Actually, the word here, when it says people were looking for him, the word in the Greek language is, is a really aggressive word. It's a violent word. It, the, the word is a, a word that means hunt, that people were literally hunting for Jesus. And when you make a commitment to solitude, people and things will hunt for you and they'll find you. And Jesus is ultimately found and then he re-engages and the result of his solitude is compassion. God wants you and me to be people of compassion. And, and I just want to say something, especially to those of you who are in healing and helping professions, whether that's pastors, counselors, nurses, doctors, teachers, um, when you find your compassion meter getting dangerously low, it's a sign that you need to work through some stuff and, and spend some time alone. Because you can't give what you don't have. So Jesus is alone, and while he's alone, he comes back after being alone, and he heals a bunch of people, and like an impromptu church service happens. Um, a lot of people gather, and there aren't restaurants all around. And so the second thing we see is that as the day is wearing down, the disciples begin to worry that there's not enough resource to take care of what is emerging in front of them. They worry that there's not enough. So the conversation unfolds like this. They say, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, Jesus, so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And this is a really interesting exchange because the disciples are simply being practical. They are anticipating a problem. Many of you have jobs where you are paid to anticipate problems. The disciples are not doing anything bad right now. They see something brewing and they think maybe Jesus is just so caught up in the moment that he doesn't see what we see. And so they just bring it to his attention. They're being practical and they're thinking during a time of scarcity, when there's not enough to go around, it's better for everyone to be on their own and to take care and to take responsibility for themselves. Jesus' response is really curious. He says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. He doesn't say, we'll, we'll figure it out or good idea, guys. He, he says, they don't really need, they don't need to leave. Like they're here for a reason and, and, and there's something for you in the reason. In the overwhelm, there's something for you is what he's saying to his friends, the disciples. 
He says, let's stay together and let's trust for provision. And the disciples don't go, oh, right. Thank you, Jesus. Like you're, you are super smart and the son of God and all that kind of stuff. They persist in their anxiety. And this is what they say after Jesus is like, no, you give them something to eat. They go, we have nothing here, but five loaves and two fish. That phrase, we have nothing here means we do not have enough to meet the needs that are now all around us. Here's what we do. We tend to push people away when we feel or fear that we can't meet their needs. We do that to our spouses, our kids, our friends, our coworkers. We, when we feel that we can't meet a need, and y'all need to hear the disciples are not living in some delusional space. They are seeing reality. They do not have enough to meet the need. And when we fear that we can't meet a need, we tend to want to push people away and put them more at arm's length. So the third thing we see is that Jesus simply asks his friends to bring them what they have. They say, we don't have enough. All we have Five and two, five pieces of bread, two fish. One gospel tells us that a little kid brought this food. Um, that's, that's John, same story. Um, here, Matthew just gets straight to the point. He's like, all it is is there's just not enough food to go around. So when Jesus hears that there's not enough, and then they quantify the not enough, they know that they don't have enough, they know what they do have, and they know that it would never, ever, ever meet the need. Jesus says, well, I want you to give that to me. I want you to make that scarce resource available to me. Now, John's gospel tells us that uh, it was a kid. And I think that's probably totally helpful for us to hear because um, the kid in, in John's gospel uh, would not have been the only person to bring food to this gathering. Like, let's just step back and think about it for a minute, right? People knew how this worked. Uh, there were not Trader Joe's or Publix or uh, Hankook Taquerias like everywhere. And so if you were out and about, if you were like walking around doing things, a lot of times you'd pack resources. You'd pack like dried fish and bread so that it wouldn't go bad in the, in the heat of the day. And so the kid is not the only person, but do you know what was happening here? The grown-ups knew that they didn't have enough for themselves and everybody else. So when push came to shove, they hid what they had. The kid was the only one dumb enough to share what, he, what she had or he had. And as I look out at this room, I see a lot of grown-ups. I see a lot of us who have grown accustomed to a kind of situational awareness that says there's not enough for me and for you, so I'm just going to keep what I have for me, for us. And this isn't even primarily about money. In this story, it's not about money at all. It's about, like, sustenance. So you might think, I don't have enough love for me and you. I don't have enough hope for me and you. I don't have enough wisdom for me and you. And what we tend to do as humans when we struggle with scarcity, and I would submit to you that we all struggle with scarcity, is that when we're confronted with needs that we know we can't meet in our own resources, we tend to want to kind of like hold our resources to ourselves. And it hurts us. It hurts our spouses, our friends, our kids, our 
family, our places of all the things. It hurts the church. It, it hurts everything when we do this. And Jesus says to his friends, would you make available what you have? And the parenthetical statement here is because I know what you have isn't really enough. Would you share it anyway? So at its very core, a story like this is about taking our not enough and giving it to God and seeing what he would do with it. But here's the deal, they're, they're afraid. So I want you to imagine the way, the way that it would have felt. So the way I imagine this story going is like, Jesus has told everybody to sit down in groups. So he started to organize people. He started to kind of like divide them up and the disciples are sitting there going like, you gotta get rid of these people. And, and as they're doing that, they're doing what we all do. They're turning their back to the need. And they're looking at Jesus and they're being like, Jesus, please get rid of these people. And then Jesus, Jesus is saying to, he's looking at the need and his friends. And that's like the thing Jesus is able to do that you're not ever able to do. He can see the need and you. And they're wanting something to happen, but they feel, you know, it's like they feel the need like bearing down in the back of their head. And you know what this feels like. This happens to you every day, if you're honest. I don't have enough to give those kids. I don't have enough to do that at work and to do this at home. I don't have enough. And Jesus says, would you give me your not enough? Would you give me that, that meager resource that is inadequate to the task? He's not telling them it's not inadequate. And then what does he do? He takes five pieces of bread and two fish, and then he begins to break it up into smaller pieces. So he takes five plus two, divides it by 12. So he takes not enough and makes it like <laughs> really not enough. And I want to be very clear, no miracles occurred at this point. So they're, they're, they're looking at Jesus, and they've handed him inadequate resources. He hands them back remarkably inadequate resources. And they look at their inadequate resources, and they're like, oh, man. And then he says, I want you to turn around toward the need. It's the next thing we see in the story. Do you imagine how scary this would be? You can imagine it, because this happens to you every day. Turning toward need doesn't mean you're not scared. Courage doesn't mean you do a thing and you're not afraid. Courage means you are afraid and you turn anyway. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's asking his friends to turn around and to make statements of trust and faith, even as they feel terrified. And I believe that he does the very same thing for you every single day. He does for me too. The question isn't whether you have enough. The question is, what are you going to do with the stuff you have that clearly isn't enough? That's the question. I also don't believe that a miracle had occurred until they turned around. Maybe not even then. It might have been as they started to give it away. And the reason why I believe that is because that's the way I experience it in my own life. And some of you have never tested this theory, and so you just don't know that you believe it. Some of us have grown so accustomed to 
hiding and shrinking back into the shadows when we're confronted with our inadequacy and we haven't seen what God can do. We turn inward versus outward. And this is a story about turning outward. And I just want to say this to you. If you, if you don't feel the invitation to risk, you're probably not doing it right. Like if you don't risk in ways that make you feel nervous in your faith, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably leaving a lot on the bone, as they say down south. You're not, you're not getting down to it. There are times where we should feel a little bit scared. Every time I engage the people I love when I don't feel like I have enough is a step where I'm turning toward a need and saying, Jesus, I believe you even if I'm really afraid. Every time I show up in places where I feel inadequate or I feel not matched to the situation and say, I can't solve this, but I will show up, I'm turning to Jesus and taking a risk and I feel afraid. That's part of the journey. That's part of the process. It's, in, it's my conviction, and I don't know this. We'll find out for sure when we are in the resurrection. But it's my conviction that the miracle did not occur until they started to actually give it away, until they were willing and able and in a space where failure was imminent. That's when the Lord showed up. And the last thing we see here is that they end up with more than enough. So, um, not a trick question because we read it. How many baskets fulls were left over? How many disciples? Okay. I've heard scholars go, 12 tribes of Israel. I, I'm just not that smart. I, I think Jesus wanted them all to carry a basket back to the boat. Not to shame them, but he just wanted them to carry a basket back so they could feel the weight of it. And they could feel like, this is what happens when you take, you're not enough and you make it available. He wanted them to feel the weight of it. He wanted them to put it in the boat. Peter was in this group. He, he got back in that boat. And we just read before the sermon that Peter was saying, I'm about to die. And he did. He was crucified upside down. He wasn't able to do that, to submit to that, until he had learned this. Don't try to hit home runs before you learn to just show up and get in the batter's box. God wants you and me to be the kinds of people who allow him to teach us to make our resources that are inadequate available. And Jesus just asked him to carry it back. He just asked him to hold the abundance. I think he wants the same thing for you and for me. So here's the, here's the question for reflection. Where is Jesus inviting you to move toward a need as you believe him for provision? Where is he asking you? We got to move from the abstract to like, what's staring you in the back of the head that you don't want to look at? Where are you trying to put distance between yourself? For some of you, it's a need in a person sitting right next to you. For others of you, it's, a, it's an invitation to like really get outside yourself and really trust God with like an idea or an act of obedience or starting something. But, but sometimes it's just as simple as like, I, 
I just drink three glasses of wine and hide from my kids at night because I just don't feel like I have enough? What would it look like for you to trust that God could meet you in your imperfect resourcing and do something good? Do you see we all get to show up and just be finite, fragile humans? There, there are no superheroes in this story but Jesus. And y'all, like with the miracle of the turning of the water into wine, nobody knew a miracle had occurred except for the disciples. In that first miracle, it was only the servants. Everybody else was just like, well, that's really impressive. Jesus and his friends, they brought a bunch of food. But the disciples knew. A lot of the miracles in your life, nobody's ever going to know. But you'll know. And it'll make you brave for the next time. If we can, let's stand. Where is God inviting you to move toward a need? We're going to spend a moment in silence before we come to the table. What a gift to come to communion on a day where we look at this meal. It's just perfect. But let's hold this question. Where is God asking me to turn toward a need where I don't have enough? I think you should be as specific as you can in your heart before God and naming what that thing is that you believe he's asking you to turn toward. And after some silence, we'll prepare for communion. But let's be still. Let's ask the question.